1993, Canadian psychologist Keith Stanovich conducted a fascinating study. For the study, he gathered 24 experienced radiologists. These radiologists had spent their entire career reviewing medical scans. Specifically, they'd look at lung nodes, searching for abnormalities. A black dot, a smudge, an off-colour blotch, anything that might indicate a problem. These radiologists are trained to spot anything abnormal, and they've been doing this for years. They'd spent more time studying medical scans than most of us have spent driving, cooking, or reading. In other words, they're pros. Which is why the results of this study are so surprising. During the experiment, Stanovich had the radiologists review several medical scans, but in the final scan, Stanovich artificially inserted something into the image. He inserted an image of a gorilla, 48 times the size of the average abnormality that they'd be looking for. So this gorilla is very easy to spot. Featured in the top right-hand corner, it's grabbing its side and pumping its fist in the air. I've left a link to the image in the show notes so you can have a look for yourself. Yet here's the thing. In the study, most of these experienced radiologists didn't see the gorilla. A shocking 83% of them didn't notice the gorilla at all. Point is, when we're not looking for something, we tend to miss it. Radiologists are so focused on spotting tiny abnormalities that they miss the massive abnormality that's 48 times the size of normal. When we're not looking for something, we tend to miss it. And brands, companies, and other businesses looking to persuade, well, they take advantage of this. Hotel chains pack their website with scarcity-based nudges to make us buy. Government communications come jam-packed with nudges to convince us. And even your local restaurant waiter uses a carefully crafted script to upsell us. We don't notice these things because we don't look for them, but more and more organizations are using them. Today, we'll pull back the curtain on the six most common methods of influence. We'll share how they're used, how you can spot them, and chat about whether you should use them in your job. All of that coming up after this quick break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I've invited Patrick Fagan back on the show. Patrick's a behavioral scientist with 12 years of experience in emotional sciences and data analytics. He was the lead psychologist at Cambridge Analytica, where he specialized in designing targeted ads to nudge people into doing all sorts of things, from buying bottled water to voting for politicians. He's an expert in persuasion and knows the most common methods of influence. In his latest book, Free Your Mind, he shares that the most common forms of persuasion, the ones we tend to miss, are the six principles of influence that Robert Cialdini shared way back in the 80s. These principles, despite being 40 years old, are still very relevant today, and they're still used by businesses, governments, and second-hand car salespeople across the globe. 
To get started, I asked Patrick to walk me through the first principle and why it works. Yeah, I'm sure as most of your listeners probably know, we have limited attention spans. We can't process all of the information in the world. So much of the time we have to run on autopilot uh, using what's called heuristics, so subconscious rules of thumb. And there are many frameworks for these rules of thumb. Um, but ironically, one of the most influential comes from Influence, a book by Cialdini, where he originally outlined uh, six principles or six nudges which can influence uh, behavior. Um, so one is social proof. Uh, if you imagine you're in a foreign city for a business trip for one night and you can only find two restaurants, one is completely deserted and the other one is packed. Uh, which one will you choose? Probably the packed one, uh, because you know if it's busy, it must be good. Um, some people choose the empty one. I probably would, but I'm a disagreeable introvert. Um, there, There is an important point there that not all nudges work the same for everyone. Uh, one thing I do in my job is targeted nudges. I work out the personality and the profile of the audience and design nudges that will work for them. But generally speaking, when I talk about this in a presentation, I would say, at least 90% of hands go up for the busy restaurant. Uh, So that's social proof. Like Patrick says, human beings are very social animals. Having evolved in tribes, as a result, we tend to follow the crowd. Following the crowd rather than independently making a decision is a heuristic known as social proof. And this isn't necessarily irrational. It makes evolutionary sense for us to do this. We don't have the time and energy to think through every decision in detail. And if everyone else is doing something, it's probably the correct thing to do. If everyone is screaming and running away, you should probably do the same. But Patrick shares in his book a hilarious example of this. It's CCTV footage from a bar in Brazil. It's around 9pm and diners are packed on tables along the pavement when a group of joggers from a local CrossFit runs past. Without even looking at where they were running from, the diners started to dart up and follow the runners. In less than 10 seconds, the whole restaurant was abandoned with hundreds running down the road and no one left to pay the bill. Psychologist Stanley Milgram ran an experiment on this bias in which researchers stopped in a busy New York street and stared up at a fixed point where absolutely nothing was happening. Turns out many passers-by stopped and looked up too, following this herd instinct. Patrick writes how it's this herd instinct that drives the bandwagon effect on election days, when favourable early exit polls give a candidate a vote share boost in places where it's legal. And it's visible in financial markets, where cryptocurrencies live or die on their perception of popularity. This principle is used by businesses. It's behind McDonald's 1994 slogan, which stated, over 99 billion served. And it's behind Amazon's use of their slogan, which we've all seen, which states, customers who brought this item also brought... This principle is commonplace because it works. And I've tested it out myself. I created two Reddit ads... Both ads were identical, except for a slight tweak to the image. For the first ad, I just used an image of the Nudge logo. For the second ad, I decided to create a new social proof variant with the Nudge logo at the center, surrounded by some of the five-star reviews that I've received on Apple Podcasts. I spent around $100 on these ads. In total, around 300,000 people saw them, and the social proof version came out on top. When Reddit visitors saw the social proof ad, they were 9% more likely to click the ad and listen to the podcast. That meant for every $5 spent, the social proof version would drive an extra 20 subscribers to the podcast. Social proof is a simple yet powerful nudge, causing diners to flee their dinner 
and perhaps some of you to listen to this very episode. But let's move on to the second principle, scarcity. There's scarcity where we're more likely to value something if it's scarce for a few reasons. First of all, it's evolutionary. You know, if it's winter and there's no food and you find some, obviously you'll, you'll feel an urgency to collect it. Uh, also, it can communicate status and a unique identity um, if you own something that other people can't. And so if you make something appear scarce, people feel an urgency to, to obtain it. So one anti-smoking or stop smoking campaign added a message saying there's only 300 places left and they significantly increased the conversion rate, for example. Scarcity has scientific backing. A classic 1975 study by Warshell found that people enjoy the taste of a cookie more when it's the last one in the jar. In practical terms, it explains why people love Black Friday deals, even though, as Patrick points out in his book, the discounts aren't even that great. Witch.com found that 99.5% of Black Friday deals are the same or cheaper at other times of the year. The scarcity instinct is why children can spend hours looking for rare Pokemon and why adults can spend tens of thousands of dollars on a diamond ring that costs De Beers only a couple of hundred dollars to mine. And this scarcity principle, it's easy to apply. Head over the River Thames from my flat in London and you'll spot a pub that always seems to have a queue at the bar. There's nothing special about this pub apart from the sign above the door which reads, The Only Pub on Salone Street. So... That's scarcity. Now let's move on to principle number three. Then there is uh, commitment and consistency, where we're more likely to do something if we've made a small commitment already, or any kind of commitment, in fact. And there's a few reasons for this. One is the sunk cost fallacy, where we don't want to lose our investments if we've put time and effort and money into something already. Also, we don't like to let people down socially. Uh, we could be ostracized. So if we've said we would do something, we generally ought to do it. Um, and also there's an identity aspect where a coherent sense of self is quite important for well-being. Um, and so if you're, for example, the environmental one in your friend group, then you're going to recycle and so forth to maintain that coherent sense of self. Um, and so that's, for example, the foot in the door technique. If you get people to sign a petition for a politician, which is a very small act, they're more likely to vote for him or her later, which is the big act. We all feel a need to comply with a request if we are already committed to it. Like Patrick says, we are social animals. We face ostracism if we don't do what we say we'll do. He makes the point that the British political party, the Liberal Democrats, have never quite recovered in terms of their vote share since they formed a coalition government in 2010. One of their election promises was to abolish university tuition fees, but once in power, they actually agreed to triple these fees. The second reason why this commitment and consistency principle occurs is that we don't like to lose our investments. We experience sunk costs and stick to our decisions. A famous 2006 study titled The Endowed Progress Effect involved giving car wash customers a loyalty card with eight spaces to fill in order to redeem a free car wash. Half of the customers got a card with just eight empty spaces, while the other half got a card with 10 spaces, but two of them were already stamped to begin with. In the first group, only 19% of customers brought enough car washes to fill the card. But in the second group, where two stamps were plugged in for them, 34% of customers actually bought enough to fill the card. Patrick shares an eye-opening study on consistency in his book, 
Psychologists Lars Hall and Peter Johannesson had participants fill in a survey indicating their agreement with moral issues. Participants completed the survey on a piece of paper attached to a clipboard. What they didn't know is that one set of the statements was written on detachable paper, which was then turned around, stuck to the back of the clipboard, replacing the statements they had agreed with, with the polar opposite statements underneath. So, for example, a statement such as, it is morally defensible to purchase sexual services, became, it is morally reprehensible to purchase sexual services. The participants were then asked to explain the answer they had seemingly given. Incredibly, about 50% of participants gave justifications for answers they hadn't provided. 50% explained why it's reprehensible to purchase sexual services, even when they had actually answered seconds earlier with the opposite view. That shows how we seek consistency and seem to want to stick to our existing beliefs, even when those beliefs are different from what we previously said. Now, let's move on to principle number four. Then there's reciprocity, which is where we will do something for somebody if we feel obligated to, if they've done something for us in the past. Um, again, we're very social animals, and if we don't repay our behavioral debts, then we could be ostracized. And so there's research showing, for example, if you give people a can of Coke, they're more likely to then fill in your survey. We tend to comply with someone with whom we feel indebted. Essentially, we feel a need to return favours. Patrick writes in his book that this principle is hardwired into the brains of species across the animal kingdom. Observe monkeys and you'll discover that 30% of nitpicking is simply done to return the gesture. There's even a species of fruit fly whose male secures sex with the female by giving her a gift of food. Researchers intercepted this female-bound male fly and used tweezers to replace the food with useless fluff. And yet, the mating still went ahead. Patrick makes the point in his book that it really is the thought that counts. On a practical level, it explains why brands give away free gifts, why governments give benefits to voters, and why British men spend almost a billion pounds each Valentine's Day. We want to be liked so we return the favour. But liking is a principle in itself. Here's Patrick to explain. Then there's liking, where we're more likely to be influenced by people we like. And there's a few reasons that we might like someone. It could be because they are attractive. It could be physically attractive, but also if they're famous, tall, successful, whatever it might be. We like people who are familiar to us, so who we know already. And we also like people who are similar to us. Uh, and similar could be demographics, but it could also be attitudes, the way they're dressed, even you know, when you're younger and you're a, an emo or a punk and then you meet someone else who's also an emo, you're kind of instantly friends, even though you don't know that person, but because you're familiar and similar. Um, and so there's research showing, for example, People give more tips to waitresses who smile, that kind of thing. Research cited in Patrick's book shows that attractive people are judged less harshly by jurors and that the most handsome people at work earn 5% more on average while the ugliest earn 7-9% to less. And liking, well, it sells. It explains why Beckham got paid $180 million to promote Qatar. It's because advertising messages are more palatable when they come to us from someone who we know and trust. One study from Patrick's book had people rate the likelihood of buying from a pictured salesman, not knowing that this salesman was photoshopped. It was a blend of two faces, 65% stock model and 35% Tiger Woods. Although they didn't consciously recognise that Tiger Woods had been blended into the face, they trusted the salesperson more than a, a random salesperson. 
Funnily enough, they repeated this experiment when Tiger Woods' infidelities hit the headlines and found that the effect was reversed. In fact, the liking effect is so strong that simply being pictured alongside someone likeable will make you more appealing. I tested this for my podcast. I reached out to 100 participants across the UK and asked them a simple question. Would you listen to this podcast? Beneath that question was a picture of the Nudge podcast logo. However, I added a twist. Half of the participants saw the Nudge logo on top of a blue background. The other half saw the logo, but this time in the background you could see the faint dimmed logos of very popular British shows. Shows like Off Menu, Desert Island Discs, No Such Thing as a Fish. I picked those shows because they are some of the most well-known podcasts in the UK. And simply picturing Nudge alongside those popular shows made my show more popular. People were almost three times more likely to listen to Nudge when it was pictured alongside other well-known pods. When the logo was seen on its own, only 6.4% of people said they would listen. And when it was pictured alongside popular peers, 15.8% said they would listen. You can see an image of this test and the other tests in my show notes. But finally, let's hear the last principle of influence. The final nudge is authority. And this is to do with the fact that we, again, are cognitive misers, so we can't process every piece of information in the world. And so a kind of kooky example I give is that I assume the vast majority of your listeners don't believe the earth is flat. Um, but the question would be, how do you know it's not flat? Have you been into space to see it? There are certain experiments you can do with pendulums and so forth, but probably you haven't done them. You know it's not flat because your teachers told you and scientists and white lab coats told you. And so you take it for granted because you don't have the time or the energy or the motivation to do all this research yourself. Uh, it would be impossible for every subject. I'm not saying the earth is flat, by the way. I'm just using it as an example to show that we need to believe authority figures, and we do, and it's generally quite efficient, although it can go wrong sometimes. And so, of course, there's famously the Stanley Milgram experiment where he found that people were more likely to give an electric shock that they believed was fatal to someone else if they were asked to by someone wearing a white lab coat. So if there are these trappings or signals of authority, we're more likely to do what we're told. The authority principle explains why testimonials are so important and why certifications and awards are so effective. It explains Michelin star restaurants, Oxbridge graduates, and the reviews plastered onto book covers and movie posters. The principle explains why one 1974 study changed direct mail for good. Notice how every important letter you receive from the bank is signed by its CEO. Well, that's not by accident. The study found that a letter from a dentist's office got a 54% return rate when it was signed by the dentist him or herself, but only an 18% return rate when it was signed by the dentist's secretary. The dentist's title was an authoritative cue that made people comply. Social proof, scarcity, consistency, reciprocity, liking and authority, these are the six principles that can be used to persuade pretty much anyone. And these are six principles that you are bombarded with whenever you shop online. Find out how after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. 
Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new Service Hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, welcome back to the show. So far, Patrick has walked me through these principles, but I wanted to hear how they could be applied. So I asked for an example, and Patrick explained how you could be persuaded by each of these six principles after just spending a minute shopping online. Here's how. Yeah, so a great example of these nudges kind of brought together into one is hotel websites, uh, or certainly was hotel websites. I think they've kind of had a rap on the knuckles fairly recently. They're a bit less overt about it all, but they used to layer in the nudges very heavily. Um, so let's say you go onto a hotel website and you look at a particular room in a hotel, uh, you know, somewhere like booking.com as an example, and it would say, this has a 9.3 rating from this uh, expert site. So already they're using authority. Um, to make you think it must be good. Then they'll have nicely written reviews from real people that have real names, sometimes even a, a, a profile picture. And so now they're using liking uh, to kind of warm you to the hotel and to humanize the information. Um, then they have that big long list of things that you get in the room with all the green ticks, your know, Wi-Fi, air conditioning, mini bar, futon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that potentially reciprocity, you know, will give you all this stuff for free. Then famously, they might say only one room left on the site, and that's scarcity. So you feel that urgency to book it now before it's gone. Now, I saw that on a hotel website once, and I booked the room, and then I went back to the website, and it still said one room left. But I, I think that's the kind of thing that they've been cracking down on. Then they might say, in the last 24 hours, 10 other people have looked at this hotel, and they're using social proof to say that the hotel is, is popular. Um, and then finally, often what they'll do is they'll say, book the hotel now and you can pay when you get there. And that's a nice foot in the door commitment nudge where you're doing the small commitment now. So you're more likely to follow through on the main thing later. But it's not just private businesses that apply these principles. It is governments too. There is one fairly bland text message from the NHS sent to every Brit in the UK that was absolutely jam-packed with nudges. The text said... You have reached the top of the queue and are a priority for getting a free NHS COVID-19 vaccine. Here's Patrick explaining why this one text is so persuasive. So the NHS sent this text message uh, for the COVID-19 vaccine and it is really a masterclass in how to bring together multiple nudges into one message. And we know that there are lots of behavioral scientists in the NHS and working at the government uh, for the pandemic response. So I don't have any proof, but this message was almost certainly crafted and tested by behavioral scientists. And so in just 19 words, they managed to pack in at least six nudges. Uh, and the 19 words were, you have reached the top of the queue and are a priority for getting a free NHS COVID-19 vaccine. 
Uh, so by saying there's a queue, they're using social proof and implying it's popular, so it must be good. By saying you've reached the top of the queue, they're using commitment, uh, so you feel invested, like you've been waiting in line, you don't want to lose your place. By saying you're at the top of the queue, that might be an ego nudge, uh, so you feel special, like you're above the people who are waiting uh, below you. Uh, by saying you're a priority, that's uh, potentially a scarcity nudge. They're implying that demand is bigger than supply, and so you feel that urgency to get it. By having it come from the NHS, they're using messenger effects of liking and authority, uh, because people in the UK like and trust the NHS, so they're more likely to to, to receive the message well. Uh, and then by giving the the by saying it's free, it's possibly a reciprocity nudge. Uh, but also we're more likely to do things the easier they are. So it's all about removing barriers. So giving it for free, obviously, is removing a barrier. And they also make it very easy to to just click on the link and book your appointment. Um, another nudge that wasn't used in this message, but was used a lot, was the endowment effect. Uh, and you see this a lot with messages from the, the NHS. They say, we have booked your appointment. Your appointment is waiting for you. So using the word you, saying it's yours, so you don't want to lose it, so you feel like you own it. And also by pre-booking it, which is something I see, uh, I have a, a 10, 11-month-old son, they always pre-book appointments and they say, your appointment will be waiting for you on this date. And so that's using the default effect as well. This NHS text masterfully applies all six persuasion techniques in just 19 words. And yet, like Patrick says, they could have gone even further by adding the endowment effect. This effect has been proven to work by researchers Katie Milkman, Angela Duckworth and Mitesh Patel. In their test, they sent 19 different text messages designed to get people to accept a flu vaccine. They found that language stating a vaccine had been reserved for your appointment increased uptakes in flu shots over the control group by 4.6 percentage points. The point is applying these principles of persuasion clearly works, whether it's scarcity, reciprocity or consistency, each can be used to shift behaviour. And don't be worried that people might notice when you use these nudges. They don't. Just like the radiologists I shared at the start of the show, if people aren't looking for something, they just won't find it. We don't spend our holidays looking for social proof nudges, just like radiologists don't look for gorillas. Believe me, I talk about this stuff all the time, yet I guarantee if I'm on holiday and I see a long queue for a seaside restaurant, I'll want to go in. All right, that is all for today, folks. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed today's show with Patrick, then you should definitely head back and make sure you listen to our first episode together. That one is called How to Manipulate the Masses. Patrick explains how we're bombarded with persuasion techniques, encouraging us to buy, to holiday, and even to eat insects. So head back and give that one a listen. If you like today's show, then I think you'll love Patrick's book, Free Your Mind. I've dropped a link to that in the show notes. And also in the show notes, you'll find a link to sign up to my newsletter. If you do, you'll get access to bonus shows and a behavioral science tip every Friday. Okay, thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and I'll be back next week for another episode of Nudge.